long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters, who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I am so stoked to have you with me today, because today we're going to talk about my hometown disaster, Basically, if it's possible to have a favorite disaster, it's my favorite disaster ever. I don't know what that says about me, but you're already listening to a podcast about disasters by someone who calls herself the Disaster Queen, so I guess I'm not telling you anything new, but today we're talking about the Great Dayton Flood of 1913, and I'm talking about Dayton, Ohio, which is my hometown, and so every kid in Dayton grows up learning about this in school. And as an adult or a teenager, I would say I got kind of more into it. I read a book about it. Um, And I even discovered at some point that my wedding anniversary, March 25th, is the day that that the levees broke in 1913, which I think is kind of weird, considering I'm so into Dayton history and into this disaster in particular. So let's go ahead and get into it. It occurred March 25th, 1913, but it actually is a multi-day disaster as most floods are. So let me give you a little bit of background about Dayton, Ohio. Currently, it is, I don't know, maybe the eighth biggest city in Ohio. It's a big city, but it's not huge. Um, Back in the old 1900s, early 1900s, it had about 115 to 120,000 residents. So now it has a really big suburban population. We probably still have that many in the city, but we have a huge, like, sprawling suburb area, which they didn't have so much back then. So it had about 100, let's say 117,000 residents, and it was the home of a lot of industry. So it was a big manufacturing center. Um, There are big businesses there like NCR, National Cash Register, which probably makes every cash register you've ever um, patronized in your whole life at any business. The Barney and Smith Car Company, which was a railroad car company. That was huge. Um, Delco, which made, was for automobile engineering, which eventually became part of General Motors. Um, and uh, shortly after the flood, McCall's Publishing came to Dayton, and that was the largest publishing house in the United States for a long time. So it was a big, big uh, center of business and manufacturing in particular. Also home of the famed Wright Brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright are our favorite hometown sons. They obviously invented the airplane. They were bicycle mechanics and bicycle shop owners, and they invented the airplane here in Dayton, Ohio. Then they packed it up in crates and took it to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where they had some sand and some wind to see if it would fly. So we have a big beef with North Carolina, um, Ohio does, about this. So North Carolina says that they are first in flight, and Ohio says that we are the birthplace of aviation. I would also like to point out that once the Wright brothers got their airplane to work with the wind in the sand, when they no longer needed the wind in the sand, they came back to Dayton and did all their test flights at Huffman Prairie, 
and really figured out how to make flight work here at Huffman Prairie. So I'm just saying, okay. Anyway, that's kind of off topic, but Orville Wright will come back into this flood story at some point, but let's keep going about Dayton. So Dayton sits on the Great Miami River, and it's actually built at the confluence of five waterways that come together downtown the Great Miami, the Little Miami, the Mad River, the Stillwater River, and Wolf Creek. So like all of our metro parks are called Five Rivers Metro Parks. It's Five Rivers Everything because we really were built right at the confluence of these five waterways. And the Great Miami River watershed covers nearly 4,000 square miles and 115 miles, 115 miles of the channel that feeds into the Ohio River. So it's a big area the whole suburban area is called the Miami Valley. Um, the Great Miami River really does flow very a long ways. <laughs> so um, Dayton wasn't the only community affected by this flood, but it was the most devastated as it sat right as the downtown area sat right, you know, where all these rivers came together. So let me tell you what happened on March 25th, 1913. I should say that this is the most notes I've taken for any of my podcast episodes. So this might be a longer one, especially because I'm kind of passionate about my hometown. So I guess I'm sorry, but I, I'm not really sorry. Okay. On March 25th, 1913, that's the day the levees broke. However, the big storm started a few days earlier and it actually was a huge storm system that affected a lot of areas of the Midwest. And even one of the source articles I used I believe is called the Great Flood of 1913 because it did not just affect Ohio. So on March 21st is really when the big storm began with really powerful uh, 58 mile per inch wind gusts. There were tornadoes in some other states like Nebraska and Indiana. The ground in Dayton in the Miami Valley was already really saturated from previous rains and snows, a lot of snow over the winter. So there wasn't a lot of room for the ground to absorb water. And it started raining really hard on Easter Sunday, March 23rd, dumping 8 to 11 inches of rain over the Miami Valley over the next five days on ground that was already totally saturated. So on Tuesday, March 25th, the Great Miami River was rising at two feet per hour. And predictably, the levees failed. There was no chance that the levees could hold because the volume of water from the Great Miami River and its tributaries was flowing at a rate of 250,000 cubic feet of water per second through a river channel that only had a capacity for 25,000 cubic feet per second. So 10 times the amount of water as what the channel could handle was flowing through. So the earthen levees that had been built up all around downtown in multiple places, there were multiple levees just there's no chance they were going to hold. So it was actually the amount of water equal to what flows through Niagara Falls in four days is what flew, flowed, <laughs> what flew, what flowed through the cha river channel in Dayton in about that amount of time. So it's really hard for me to imagine as someone who lives here. But spoiler alert, when we get to the end, you'll see that you know, they learned something from the flood. So as someone who lives here now, when nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime or even my parents' lifetime, uh, it's really hard for me to imagine this much water flowing through downtown. It's insane. So as I mentioned, there were several levees 
Um, the first one that broke was at almost exactly 7 a.m. on March 25th. And it was downtown at Webster Street. If you're a local Daytonian, you'll know where that is. And a 10 to 20 foot wall of water began racing through the busy streets from that levee at Webster Street. And people ran or swam for their lives to get inside tall buildings or to higher ground. By 8.30 a.m. or so, other levees near downtown started to break as well. And the one that's at Main Street and Monument downtown, right where really downtown begins, that is where a huge crowd of people had gathered to watch the river. And so there was just a mass of screaming people running as the water started to just flow with deadly force downtown. So there were a lot of people who just ran into the nearest tall building they could find and rode out the flood with a bunch of strangers for a few days because they were downtown doing a looky-loo when the levees broke, which I can't, you know, I can't blame them. I mean, like I said, this, none of the floods had ever been catastrophic before. Very convenient and damaging, yes, but not particularly deadly or anything like that. Water would eventually reach up to 20 feet in downtown Dayton, eclipsing street lamps and single-story houses knocking buildings off their foundations, and destroying between ten and 20,000 homes and businesses. It killed hundreds of people. Across Ohio, about 467 people is the official death toll. In Dayton, there's some say that is about 100, and there are some say that's closer to 250. A lot of bodies were never found, So, which is another really sad part. There's a lot of sad stories that we'll get to, but it was just something that people could never have imagined. And I'd read several books about the flood. And when you, by several, I mean three, when you, when you read about it, they also talk about all the horses that drowned and other, you know, other animals, cows, etc. But particularly a lot of people have stories of watching horses drown and they cleaned up over 2000 dead horses at the end of the flood. And that just makes me really sad as well. There's a testimony. So three three books that I read, I read a lot of newspaper articles as well. I read um, Through Flood, Through Fire by Kurt Dalton. The quintessential book on the flood, A Time of Terror by Alan W. Eckert is written in the 60s. And another one called Grand Eccentrics, which is really about some of the men we'll be talking about, not particularly about the flood, but it has a lot of flood content in it. And a lot of um, articles from the Dayton Daily News as well. So from one of the Dayton Daily News articles, we have the testimony of Mary Louise Breen, who was 10 years old at the time. Her father was the manager of the Phillips House Hotel on Main Street, and she and her little brother, Eddie, who was eight at the time, watched from their perch high up in the Phillips House Hotel at 3rd and Main. And she says, we watched men at the courthouse across the way trying to entice frantically swimming horses onto the raised lawn of the courthouse and into the building. A dining table floated by, set for a meal. The streetcar, which had come to a stop in front of the hotel, was gradually covered and finally disappeared. There's actually a few different testimonies from people in the Phillips House Hotel that I read. And, you know, there were like 150, 200 people there stranded together. Either they were already staying there or they ran into the hotel lobby to get away from the water when the levees broke. So it was kind of interesting to get that testimony from a child. And um, a lot of the sources I read said that her dad was very heroic in trying to keep fire away from his hotel, which is another thing that we will get to. In the downtown library, if you're from Dayton, you know that where the downtown library is at 3rd and St. Clair. It is in the same spot today that it was in 1913. Different building, of course. Actually, it's 
Uh, not even the one that was there when I was a kid. There's a new one since then. So it's at least the second new building since then. But their librarian was named Minnie Althoff. And she slogged through, you know, very wet streets since it had been raining for days to get to her job. And she also could tell that, you know, they were going to get some water in the basement. So she and a couple of her library workers were trying to get priceless books moved from the library's basement up to the first floor when water began rushing in. And she could tell that she and her co-workers were going to be drowned in the basement if they didn't get out. It was coming in that fast. So she yelled for them to leave. One of her workers, Teresa was her name, ran out the side door and ran all the way home uh, to high ground. And so Minnie Althoff thought that she was dead because she never came back upstairs. But thank God she had just gotten out and not told anybody. So she and her co-workers um, ran upstairs. A few people who were in the park next to the library called Cooper Park, which is also still there came into the library seeking shelter and she and those um, people who were seeking shelter and her workers spent three cold, hungry days and nights in the library. And it was cold. Um, you know, it was March. So March in Dayton can be pretty cold and it actually snowed before the flood was over. And so they were not warm. The power went out, you know, almost immediately. She said, when I think of the days and nights spent in the library during the flood of 1913, of the dangers from fire and water and floating wreckage, of the bitter cold and pangs of hunger that we suffered, the exhaustion and anxiety, all crowd back on me with a sense of oppression difficult to throw off. The library would also lose um, about 46,000 volumes and other priceless historical records, but no one who was in the library lost their lives. So at least that's good. But as a librarian, I mean, I'm not a librarian, but I can imagine like, of course, she was glad to escape with her life, but to know that so many volumes were lost, that had to be really hard. So the river kept on rising. So, you know, like I said, levees started breaking around 7 a.m. on Tuesday, and the river did not stop rising until 2 a.m. on Wednesday. And it stopped at a whopping 29 feet. So these people, you know, their power was out, their lights were gone, they were freezing, didn't have any gas heat. Um, although the gas was left on, which we'll get to, um, so, and they were start, you know, they were very hungry if they didn't have supplies. Obviously the people at the library did not have food because they weren't at home. So people were spending some dark, terrifying nights because the water was still rising. And so if you lived on lower ground, you had to keep watch all night to see, you know, when it was going to stop, if you were going to have to move up to your attic or to your roof, because it didn't stop rising until 2 a.m. on Wednesday. Now, as I mentioned, the power was out. At some point, someone was able to get a telegraph message through to Governor James Cox in Columbus, Ohio. And he is a um, he's actually originally from Middletown, but he called Dayton his hometown. And he is started the Dayton Daily News, but also the Cox Media Empire. If, you know, it's headquartered in Atlanta now. So if you've heard of that, that's him. He also ran for president in 1920 with FDR as his running mate and lost. But anyway, somebody got word to him. But actually, uh, one of the books I read said the Associated Press called him for a comment before he'd even gotten word. And then that's how he found out from the Associated Press. So as soon as he did find out, he jumped into action and declared a state of emergency in Dayton. And he placed it and a couple other towns under martial law. So he couldn't get there, obviously not right away, but he did do what he could for his hometown and he also sought federal aid from the president. Um, 
Governor Cox's eventually built his, he had a house downtown, but he eventually built his mansion on one of the suburbs. It's, it's There's a, you know, a variety of streets with governor in the name that are in that neighborhood over yonder. So he left his mark here for sure, but he also jumped into action to help the city and the other communities in the state that were flooded at that time. But the guy who really helped on the ground was a Dayton businessman named John H. Patterson. He was the president and founder of the aforementioned National Cash Register. So I mentioned that National Cash Register pretty much makes any cash register you've ever used in any business you've ever patronized. And it was started in Dayton in the late 1800s. And it was the biggest employer in Dayton for many years. Um, NCR, as it's called, actually left Dayton in the early 2010s, and we are all still really mad about it. So that's a sore spot and a tangent that I won't go off on, but we're not happy. Um, anyway, good old John H. Patterson was a very eccentric man. He's one of the um, subject matters in the book Grand Eccentrics that I read about leading men of Dayton. And he was a doer. So he was a man of action. Um, and he saw that the river was rising. He did the math in his head about how much rain was coming down. And before the levees even broke, he was um, getting a plan together to help his city. He got up early and went down to see the levees before 7 a.m. and realized that a catastrophe was going to happen. And so he went back to NCR and called a meeting of his executives at 6.45 a.m. on Tuesday before the levees even broke. Historian Jeff Williams described his actions saying he basically took over the role of mayor because the actual mayor was trapped in his house. <laughs> they needed a leader and he provided it. He had his factory build boats and he sent out rescuers. He converted his factory into a makeshift shelter and hospital. His operations saved thousands of people. And part of the reason he could do this was because NCR was on high ground just south of downtown. So if you live here now, it's the University of Dayton area. University of Dayton bought a lot of NCR's old buildings when NCR left town. So like I said, Patterson had a meeting with his department heads and he put them in charge of different parts of what he knew would be a huge relief effort. He had men stop their regular jobs and start building flat bottom boats. And because of this, rescue boats began to be available very soon after the levees broke. His men built about 300 boats in just a few hours. And he even participated in at least one rescue himself. Um, as people were rescued, they were brought to NCR, which was basically its own little city. And it was now a flood relief shelter. The company fed and sheltered over 2,700 people a day during the flood and the flood aftermath. And in the year 1913, spent nearly two thirds of its profits on flood relief efforts. It also served as the headquarters for the National Guard and the American Red Cross during the aftermath. And so he had had, like, NCR had cafeterias where their employees would have lunch. So he had them start baking just as much bread as they could. He had, you know, a couple floors turned into medical um, facilities. And they did have their, their own on-staff nurses and everything, clinics for their employees. So it was really ready to become a relief station. And Patterson was very known for his efficiency. And he did start a really efficient relief um operation for the city. And when the flood was over and so many there were so many homeless, the grounds of NCR actually became a tent city for the homeless. So he didn't stop when the floodwaters receded. 
The Dayton Daily News printing presses even became inoperable due to the floodwaters, so Patterson allowed the newspaper to be printed on NCR's presses. And of course, as I mentioned, he provided food and lodging to those who were seeking shelter, but also he provided food, lodging, and communications equipment to reporters covering the flood because he knew that that he needed to get the word out so that he could get more relief for his city by informing people across the country that Dayton needed help. So by sheltering the reporters and providing them with communications equipment, he helped get more flood relief to come in from far and wide. It was a very interesting man. A quote from the book Grand Eccentric says, At NCR, thousands were fed and fed well. Thousands slept in reasonable comfort throughout the complex. At the emergency hospital set up on the fourth floor of the administration building, hypothermia victims were warmed, broken bones were set, broken teeth extracted, and women gave birth. The first child born was a boy named John H. for the NCR president. The second, also a boy, was named Cash short for cash register. I think that's super cute. Um, He was a cranky old cantankerous guy. He was really famous for firing and rehiring people, but he did his city a big solid during the flood. And I'm such a dork that I wrote my senior in college independent study project about John H. Patterson. I wrote a documentary about him. So I have no idea where it is now, but Somewhere, there's a documentary script that I wrote about John H. Patterson. So he's a very interesting guy. Um, So that's what NCR did. And we'll talk about what they did after as well in a little bit. By midday Wednesday, 100 National Guardsmen had arrived at NCR to make that their headquarters. I mentioned that was their headquarters. I just want to let you know that they weren't even able to get there till midday Wednesday. All right. So let's move on from NCR and talk about the next terrible peril that the people faced. Um... It was fire. I mentioned the gas. For whatever reason, the gas was not turned off in Dayton before the floodwaters caused it to be dangerous. So whether they just couldn't get to it or whether they made the decision to leave it on in the hopes that the flood wouldn't be that bad and Dayton could, you know, Dayton Teutonians could use their gas stoves to make food. I don't know. But the gas had been left on. So after spending a cold, sleepless, hungry night trapped in their homes on Tuesday, March 25th, residents were still in peril on Wednesday because, like many of our disasters do, this one went from bad to worse, thanks to fire. So there was some smaller areas of fire actually on Tuesday evening south of town, and we'll actually talk about one of those in a minute. But the biggest uh, danger to downtown happened around noon on Wednesday when the gas lines, which had not been turned off, began exploding and sparking fires downtown. It was widely reported that Dayton Power and Light President Edward Hanley decided to leave on the gas so that Daytonians could have food and warmth. But local historian Leon Bay said it may not have been a decision at all. The floodwaters may simply have risen too rapidly for anyone to turn off the gas. Whatever the reason, with the streets flooded, there was certainly no way for firefighters to get anywhere near inflamed buildings. And the type of building that was on fire also contributed to the danger. For example, the Low Paint Company at the southeast corner of East 3rd and Jefferson Streets caught fire. And as a result of being very full of flammable paint, it exploded. And that fire then spread rapidly because it was an explosion. And to this day, the two-block area between Jefferson and St. Clair Streets and between 4th and 2nd Streets downtown is called the Fire Blocks District. So... 
I'm sure you, if any if you the local Daytonians are listening to this, I'm sure you'd, it's like a it's like a cool district. So the Fireblocks District is actually on the National Register of Historic Places as the Fireblocks Historic District. So that all comes from the fire that occurred during the 1913 flood. So now many people who had been marooned on the upper floors of downtown buildings were having to literally jump from rooftop to rooftop trying to outrun the fire. The Dayton librarian, Minnie Althoff, that we talked about earlier, said she, said she recalled buildings on fire close to where she was stranded at the library. And she wrote in her uh, remembering it later, another terrific report shook our building until it seemed every window must be broken. Another corner had collapsed, the drugstore, and a tiny flame not larger than a candlelight was noticed. Immediately, we saw men rush to the edge of the adjoining tall building with ropes, which they threw over. Seven people scrambled from the fallen building, deftly caught the ropes, and were hauled to the roof. The fire spread and waged wildly, burning its way for two blocks to the water's edge. The contents of the wholesale liquor stores, paint stores, and drug stores exploded, burned, and sent the flames higher. Our second night was light as day. That was what she observed from the library. So scary. The little girl who I talked about earlier, Mary Louise Breen, at the Phillips House Hotel where her father was a manager, said in her account of the flood that her father was terrified that fire would reach his hotel. And when someone told him that the nearby Beckel House Hotel at 3rd and Jefferson Streets was on fire, he sprang into action. He stationed bellboys armed with long poles at every window so that they could push the flaming, floating debris away from his hotel when it came near. And luckily their efforts worked and the Phillips house did not catch fire, but all over the city, people had to abandon the buildings they were in and try to escape across rooftops to nearby buildings to outrun the fire. From the book, Grand Eccentrics, Eccentrics, I have a quote from a survivor who was stranded in the Beckel hotel. And he said, we got out on the roof of the Beckel annex. We took ladders along and from slippery roofs, got to open windows, passed through buildings and from windows to roofs again, we reached a 10-foot alley. A ladder was pushed across it to the next building, and we crawled over one at a time. Bear in mind, they're crawling over like 20-foot deep water below them. <laughs> anyway, we crawled over one at a time. Among those taken out to safety was a woman with a broken arm, and Mr. Bennett, the proprietor of the Beckel House Hotel, was carried from his deathbed. Like, wow, I can't imagine. You guys, I'm going to tell you already, I wouldn't have made it. I would have been a goner. There's just, I am not made of stern stuff. So speaking of that, we have some harrowing survivor stories that I want to recount to you guys. And these, again, some are from the Dayton Daily News. Some are from the book Through Flood, Through Fire by Kurt Dalton. And some are from the book A Time of Terror by Alan W. Eckert. So... First, I want to start with an amazing story of survival, the Flood Twins, as they became, they came to be known, Charles and Lois Adams. They were 11 months old at the time of the flood, living with their parents, Viola and Charles Sr. on Rung Street, which is now Neal Avenue. I know right where that is. My mom and dad used to live right off Neal Avenue. It's just north of downtown. Rescue boats came to get the family, and mom, Viola, and baby Charles were in one boat, and dad and baby Lois were in the other boat. But Viola got thrown out of her boat, either by debris or current, and she lost her grip on baby Charles. Charles Sr. tried to save Viola and lost his grip on baby Lois. Both babies floated away, but were miraculously and separately saved by strangers. 
The family all survived. They were separated for several days, but they were later reunited, both parents thinking that their entire family was dead. And baby Charles grew up to be an engineer, and he lived in Dayton until age 99. He was a popular speaker and gave lectures about the flood. And he was also the longest standing member of the Dayton Engineers Club, having joined in 1937. And so they were known forevermore as the Flood Twins and were kind of locally famous for the rest of their lives. Another baby that was saved was named Robert Fernanding, and he was eight months old. His parents, Frederick and Emma, lived at 307 Norwood Avenue in West Dayton, very near a broken levee point. So there was West Dayton is where the Wright brothers lived. It's where Paul Lawrence Dunbar lived before his death. And there was a levee there on Summit Street. And I don't know if there was more than one, but. Anyway, they lived very near a broken levee point, and when a rescue boat came for them, there was only room for baby Robert and his mother. So Dad Frederick and his two sisters, the baby's aunts, had to stay in the three-story house and try to survive. But this was an area where most of the homes tipped over and or were pushed off their foundations and floated away, so it was really hard hit. Unfortunately, the rescue boat traveled only a short distance before getting caught in a whirlpool and tipping over. There were lots of these little eddies or whirlpools that would form um, in the rushing waters. And this one caught Emma's boat. She was able to hold on to her baby and grabbed a tree trunk with the other arm. <laughs> Unbelievable. Robert says his mother told him that the current was very strong, but she was able to hang on. She listened to the horrific screams of her fellow passengers, however, as they drowned. And she and Robert were the only ones from that boat to survive. Eventually, seven workers from a nearby warehouse heard her screams for help and formed a human chain to pull her and baby Robert to safety. Robert's father and his two aunts did survive in their three-story brick house, which was sturdier than their neighbor's house, but they soon became threatened by fire when a paint factory exploded nearby. Robert's father stood on his cedar shingle roof and beat the flames off with his coat. Emma Ferneting was haunted for the rest of her life by the experience of watching her boatmates drown. That would do it for me as well, Emma. Talk about PTSD. But she did recover enough from her trauma to live a functional life and was known to be a very strong woman. She saved her son's life once again and her husband's by nursing them through the 1918 flu pandemic a few years after the flood. Incredible. Now there's another hero mom I want to tell you guys about. I don't know this lady's first name. Her story is in the book Through Flood, Through Fire by Kurt Dalton. And her married name is Mrs. James Braden. And she was from Cleveland. And she was visiting her mom and dad when the flood arrived. So she's originally from Dayton, but she had, you know, married and moved to Cleveland. She's coming back to visit her parents, Mr. and Mrs. C.W. Fisher. And they live the second house from the levee on Summit Street. Now, this is also on the west side of town. And for reference, Daytonians, the Paul Lawrence Dunbar house, um, our famous poet, his house was also on Summit Street. But I, could, I researched and researched and researched and could not find anything about his house in the flood. It's a brick house. Maybe it was fine. Maybe it's on a higher part of Summer, Summit Street. I don't know. He passed away in 1906, but I believe his mother still lived there until she died. But there was zero information in the research about what happened to his house during the flood. So I can only assume his part of Summit Street was safe. But anyway... The part of Summit Street where Mrs. James Braden was visiting was not safe. So she wrote an article, um, wrote an account and a letter about what happened. And she says, At about six o'clock, I saw that the water was beginning to come over the levee in earnest. I began to get frightened. I ran upstairs, took my year old baby Helen in my arms, 
put Eleanor, who is three years old, in her go-kart, I'm going to assume that's a stroller, and started on a run for the central part of town, three quarters of a mile away. <laughs> this woman ran with a three-year-old in a stroller and a one-year-old baby in her arms and ran three quarters of a mile to escape the water. It says, I ran until I was almost ready to drop. It seemed that I would never reach safety. The weight of the baby in my arms grew almost, almost too much for my strength. And as I ran, the water followed me. Before I reached the Algonquin Hotel, I met the water advancing me for, from another direction. When I was almost to the hotel, I was running through water above my shoe tops. Eleanor was drenched from the water which flew from the wheels of her go-kart. But she made it to the Algonquin Hotel with her two babies, and they rode out the flood there at the hotel, which is currently being redone. It was the Doubletree Hotel back when I got married. Um, I don't know what it's called going to be called when it's done being redone, but I can't wait to see the inside. Anyway, it's still there, is what I'm saying. And this hero mom ran three quarters of a mile with her two babies and saved their lives. She was sure that her parents were going to be dead. And after the flood, she was amazed to find that they were alive. And they told her that they had resolved to die together in the attic because their house was so underwater when a boat came and saved them. So miraculously, that whole family survived. She did, incidentally, try to send a taxi cab back for them when she got to the hotel. And the cab driver came back empty saying, your parents wouldn't come. They said they're going to be fine. So, oh my gosh. Elderly parents, listen to your children. That's all I have to say. Not saying that to anyone in particular, mom and dad. Just kidding. Okay. So she's a total hero. I, Mrs. James Braden, I give you all the claps. You're amazing. I wouldn't have made it. Me and my kids would have been dead. I'm, a, I'm too weak. All right. So speaking of the west side of Dayton, where she was, let's talk about the Wright brothers in the flood. Unfortunately, Wilbur Wright had passed the year before from typhoid. So it was just Orville and his sister, Catherine, and they were in their house on Hawthorne Street with their father, Bishop Milton Wright, who was quite elderly. They only had 30 minutes to move valuables upstairs. And then they sent their elderly father away in a rescue boat. And Orville says he and Catherine got out on a truck. And somehow, and they were able to spend the flood at someone else's house in higher ground. But left in a shed behind the house were the glass negatives that recorded the Wright Brothers' historic first flight. And Orville was very fretful about those being destroyed. And also about his office on 3rd Street, where the original Wright Flyer airplane was stored because the fire got very close to it. But thank God it did not, his building did not catch fire. So the plane was fortunately unharmed, but the glass negatives were damaged but not ruined. So prints can still be made from them. And just the ones you see now were not as good as what was made before 1913. So Orville had kind of a funny quote after the flood. I thought it was funny. Um, this is from the book Through Flood, Through Fire. He spoke to reporters a few days later, and this is all he had to say. He says, we were lucky. It is the irony of fate. That at the critical moment, I was not able to get away with my folks on one of my own machines. However, we came through all right, and there doesn't seem to be anything more to say. <laughs> I imagine him being like, that's all I have to say about that, a la Forrest Gump. So that's all Orwell wanted to say. He did give a lot of money to the relief um, uh, and building of flood prevention after that. So kudos to him on that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So. I do have some more harrowing stories for you because I like to tell, as you guys know from listening to me, the stories of the people who lived through or didn't live through these. So 
let's talk about another one from Through Flood, Through Fire. This is from Lily Kirkpatrick. And she was marooned on the second floor of her house at 803 South Main Street. Um, there was a cafe across the street called Saddles. And the cafe across the street, owing to the gas, exploded. And this cafe actually exploded on Tuesday. So this is a fire. This is a smaller fire that I was talking about earlier. It's not that it wasn't devastating. It just didn't destroy as huge of an area as the other fire did downtown. Because this is south of downtown. So when the cafe exploded, she saw the owner, Ollie Saddle, and his employee, Mary Shunk, thrown out of the building. They were both badly wound, wounded and they both drowned. This fire, ex fire explosion caused her own home to be in danger of fire, and she and her family had to figure out how to get away. So she says her uncle took a door of a closet and nailed two bed slats to it and put this across to another house, which they crawled through. Then they were able to enter from there a vacated bakery. There were six of them currently in the party. And from there onto a little building that had floated and lodged there between buildings. And from there onto a raft, which was actually the roof of the exploded cafe. So they were using the roof of the building where the fire had started as a raft. It's wild. Um, then some neighbors got out and also got on the raft. So now there were eight of them. They stood on that raft, which was again an exploded roof. From 7 p.m. Tuesday night until 7 a.m. Wednesday morning in the rain. And she said her uncle fought flaming debris from coming near them all night long. Finally, at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning, some boats from NCR, the National Cash Register, reached them. And they took them to the factory where they were given food and medical attention. So insane. I just can't. Like, I, I just say, like, those people endured so much. I just... I am such a wimp. I cannot imagine how I would have acted. Another family that suffered from the same fire and also lived nearby the Saddle Store and Cafe was the Lindsay family. So they also lived on South Main Street. And in their group were Father Theodore Lindsay, wife Ethel, son Howard, who was 21, daughter Dorothy, 24, and her husband Paul Osborne, and their baby Teddy, who was 16 months old. They were not in danger of the fire right away. But by 6.45, about three hours after Saddle's Cafe had exploded, their circumstances also changed for the worse. Part of the cafe's roof fell off the main building at the time of the explosion, and it was burning. So the men of the family watched carefully to see which way the burning debris would head, praying that it would not come their way. However, it soon lodged against some other debris on their side of the street and set that afire. They would have to get out of their sturdy brick home and fast. They put down a ladder and crawled over it to get to their next three neighbors' homes, collecting neighbors as they went until their group numbered 15. Paul Osborne used a sheet from the Lindsay home to fashion a makeshift baby wrap in which he could wear his 16-month-old son, Teddy, and keep him strapped to his own body for safety. So Paul Osborne was baby-wearing before baby-wearing was cool. Eventually, after they got to the third house, there was nowhere else for them to go. So looking around, the men of the group formed a plan as quickly as possible. There was a pile of debris out before them that included a sturdy-looking garage roof, and it was near a telephone pole. The men were fairly sure that they could get everyone to the garage roof and then over to the telephone pole. And the plan from there was for each person to climb the telephone pole, which had spikes on it that you could get your footing on and climb, and then literally walk across the telephone wires, holding the top telephone wires with your hands, 
to high ground at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds at the south end of Main Street. And our fairgrounds only recently moved from the south end of Main Street. So they were there for well over 100 years after the flood. One by one, they made their way onto the roof safely. But before anyone could make a move to the telephone pole, Paul Osborne shouted to everyone to drop to their knees and stabilize because a huge 20-foot long timber was hurtling toward them. And of course... It hit them, and it threw the garage roof that they were on out of the reach of the telephone pole. It also knocked 21-year-old Howard Lindsay into the water, but luckily, his family and his neighbors were able to pull him back up onto the garage roof. They had now drifted far enough away from the telephone pole, though, that they were well and truly stranded. Theodore Lindsay led everyone in a prayer, saying that God helps those who help themselves. And they had helped themselves as much as they possibly could, he said. So now they were going to have to rely on God to do the rest. So at about 7.45 p.m. Tuesday night, the Lindsays and their neighbors just committed their fate to God. This is all um, recounted in the book, A Time of Terror by Alan W. Eckert. And it does sound terrifying. But now we come to the part where this story takes an even crazier turn thanks to a cash register salesman working for NCR from Montana, of all places, from Helena, Montana. His name was Fred Scott, and he was there in Dayton for an NCR training seminar. He was none too pleased to be trapped in Dayton during the flood, and like many NCR employees, he spent the day around high ground at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds, which is aptly named Fairgrounds Hill, and he felt really helpless to do anything as he watched the city become more and more covered with water. And then as he saw the Saddles Cafe explode and the fire spread to the other homes and businesses on South Main Street. But at some point in the firelight, he was able to witness the Lindsay, Lindsay group as they made their way onto the garage roof. And their tenacity inspired him. He realized that they were going to try and go for that telephone pole. And he thought to himself that it just might work. But then he saw the garage roof get hit by debris and be spun away from the telephone pole. And that was the motivation that he needed to get him moving to see what he could do to help. So he felt spurred to action and he immediately started searching for a large rope. He found one in a nearby wagon and a guy called him a looter and tried to get, accuse him of taking it. And then they had a big fight and he punched him out. And then he got the rope <laughs> and began his journey toward the Lindsay group. He tied the rope to himself looping it over his head and one shoulder, and found the nearest telephone pole. In less than 10 minutes, he had climbed the pole and walked all the way across the wires, his hands holding onto the top wire and his feet balancing on the bottom wire, and he had reached the pole nearest the Lindsay group. Then he tied the rope to the telephone pole and threw the other end to the group. And one by one, Fred Scott, the cash register salesman from Montana, pulled the Lindsays and their neighbors, all 15 of them, up the telephone pole by the rope and then helped them get started on their journey upward to do their own tightrope walk back up to Fairgrounds Hill. It took almost an hour, but all 15 of the neighbors from South Main Street, including the sleeping infant Teddy Osborne and their rescuer Fred Scott, made it safely over the telephone wires to high ground where they were picked up and taken to NCR where they were given dry clothes, food, and medical attention. How amazing is that? Thank God for Fred Scott. Thank God he glimpsed them in the firelight and was inspired to save them. Incredible. The book, A Time of Terror, as I mentioned, it was written in the 60s. And so some of it's really dramatic. I don't know if it was just the time of the writing or 
you know, he interviewed these survivors. There were still plenty of survivors alive then that could recount those stories. But it is such an interesting read. I've read it three times in my life. Most recently, of course, while I was preparing for this podcast episode. And here's another story that it recounts that just makes me so sad. It's so tragic. But I want to remember the people who lost their lives. Um, there was a family named the Porter family that was living on a farm northeast of Dayton. They lived off of Troy Pike. If you're, again, if you're from Dayton, you'll know where that is. And about 5 a.m. when James Porter and his son Harold, 14, went out to milk the cows, they discovered to their horror that water was almost up to their farm horse farmhouse porch already. So living where they lived, it was much lower ground. James sent Harold in to wake his mother and sisters and to tell them to prepare to leave, while he himself waded out to the barn to hitch up their wagon. His wife Ida and their girls Flossie, 16, Goldie, 12, and Shirley, 10, worked with Harold to get ready, and in less than 30 minutes, they were ready to go, and they headed towards James Porter's Uncle Ehrman's house near Valley Pike in North Dayton, which is today where we call Old North Dayton. It's actually not far from where I live at all. I drive by Valley Pike all the time. Unfortunately, the situation in Dayton was much worse than Porter imagined it would be, and near the intersection of Troy Pike, now Troy, St Troy Street down there, and Leo Street, which is also still there, a huge wave of water hit his wagon from behind, and the wagon was overturned. All six of the porters drowned, wiping out an entire family. In a strange and terrible, terrible twist of fate, Ida Porter's body traveled a short distance and came to rest under the porch of her husband, Uncle Ehrman's home, on Troy Pike, near Valley Street, where they were heading for safety. She was the sole member of the Porter family to reach their intended destination, but sadly, she was already dead when she got there. You guys, I hate it. Two parents, four children. I, as a parent, I can just, I cannot imagine how horrible it is to like that moment to know that there's nothing else you can do to protect your kids. It's awful. It was really, an, uh, you know, it was an event that affected lots of families, like lots of our tragedies do, um, because they were all trying to survive together. Now let's talk about some heroes. And unfortunately, not all the heroes survived this either. But one that really struck me that had a really crazy long journey that day was a man named George McClintock. And he lived on Perry Street, um, which downtown Dayton, if you don't know, is near what is now Sinclair Community College. Perry Street is definitely still there as well. He was a railroad engineer for the Cincinnati, Hamilton, and Dayton Railroad. In other words, he was the guy that drove the train. <laughs> Tuesday morning, he was very tired. He was on the last leg of a long run that was headed from Xenia, Ohio, which is east of Dayton, where my brother lives. What up, bro? And he was headed towards Union Station in Dayton. So after about 10 minutes, he was stopped by some men on the tracks waving frantically, and they had boats. He was like, what is going on here? So he stopped. And they told him that Dayton was badly flooding and they wanted him to take them and their boats to Dayton to help. One man had called his sister by chance that morning and that's how he found out about the flood. Since McClintock himself was from Dayton, he was very concerned. So he let the men on and got their boats loaded and sped as fast as he could toward his hometown. When they got to Union Station at 6th and Ludlow Streets, water sprayed out from underneath the train. Six inches of water was completely covering the elevated tracks. He had seen high water and a lot of floating debris on his way in, and he was really nervous. He could tell that it was high in the direction of his family's home, and he felt sick about it. So when he was finally able to stop the train and get out, he commandeered one of the boats that he and the men he picked up had brought in. He began rowing toward his home through dangerously rushing deep waters and whirlpools. 
People shouted and screamed at him for help from upper floors of their homes as he rode, but he didn't stop for anyone until he got to his house. After helping his mother and his daughter move valuable life-sustaining supplies to the upper floor of their home, though, he did indeed get back in the boat and start rescuing people. By 1 p.m., an exhausted McClintock had rescued nearly 50 people. That is crazy. Depositing them in homes that had two stories, many of them in his own home. He said, uh, the book says he deposited over 20 people in his own home. Then his mother pointed out a neighbor with her nine children on the roof of a one-story home nearby. The youngest child was just an infant. So he headed back out. It took two trips, but he got all 10 of them into his home as well. Then he finally took a break and had a miraculously hot cup of broth that his mother had made them made him from a fire someone built in their bathtub. And after that, he even got a nap in. Well-deserved, George McClintock. But he woke up about 4.45 or so after 30 minutes of sleep to a new emergency. A small house was floating nearby, and three men and a woman were straddling the peak of the roof, holding on for dear life. He was determined to go and rescue them, and he set off again in his boat, rowing with blistered hands. But while he was helping the four into his boat, they heard another scream and saw a man careening by in what looked like a barn door. They watched while his makeshift raft crashed into a telephone pole and split into pieces. Luckily, the man was able to grab onto the pole, but as soon as he did, he started screaming at the people in the boat to come and get him. McClintock shouted that there was no room, but that he would be right back for him as soon as he let these passengers off safely. Unfortunately, though, the young man was too panicked to wait, and just as McClintock neared his house to let the passengers off, the young man leaped from the pole onto the boat. Of course, this momentum totally capsized the boat and threw McClintock and all his passengers into the water. George's family watched in horror from their window as he quickly floated downstream, got his pant leg caught on a bridge, and went under, never to reemerge. Only one of McClintock's passengers, a man named Phelps, lived to tell the tale. And so George McClintock, who saved over 60 people, died a hero, but he left behind a son, a daughter, and his elderly mother. There are so many more stories I could tell you of heroic rescuers. Many lived, many did not. It was people really helped each other during this time. And it is beautiful to know that the community came together. Highly encourage you guys to read all these books that I've been listing. I got them all from the Dayton Public Library, so they're available. Um, but George McClintock's story really touched me. He rescued all those people safely and then finally lost his life. It's just, ugh, it's horrible. I hate it. I hate it a lot, but I think his story is important to be told. So now let's move on to like some overall aftermath and stats about the flood. So if you go downtown today, you can still see high water marks on many buildings. If you're local, I highly recommend you visit Carillon Park, our historical park. Their flood exhibit is awesome. I love it. And um, yeah, I've seen it twice and I'll never get tired of it. So I need to go back again soon. I wanted to go back before I recorded this, but I just didn't have time. But like I said, I have seen it twice and it's amazing. So you can learn some of this stuff there, but you can learn it here too. So it was Ohio's worst natural disaster to this day with 467 deaths statewide. Like I said, the death toll in Dayton is uncertain, but most say it's between 100 and 123. I have had other sources say it was upwards of 200. So not really sure there. 15 square miles of Dayton lay underwater, 65 thousand people were displaced from their homes that's 
over half the residents of the city of Dayton at the time. More than 10,000, between 10 and 20,000 homes were damaged, and property damage was more than $100 million, which is today $2 billion in today's economy. So that is just devastating. The teak and mahogany from the Barney and Smith Railroad Car Company was found as far downriver as New Orleans. And the Dayton Sanitation Department report said that for the month after the flood, they removed 133,600 wagon loads of debris, cleaned 13,991 houses and cellars, picked up 1,420 dead horses and 2,000 other dead animals. The flood made national news and originally they thought it was going to be way worse than it was. Um, and so the New York Times headline during the flood says, Dayton O engulfed, thousands may be dead. So this was national news. It put Dayton on the map once again in a way that they really didn't want to be. So let's talk about the aftermath and what happened to prevent this from ever happening again. Because they definitely got on that. And thank God they did because I live here in a safe Miami Valley. <laughs> so... In addition to the NCR shelter, other shelters were set up north of downtown, and the city came together to really help each other in a massive cleanup, and the National Guard helped out as well. Stores reopened as soon as possible, and immediately thoughts turned to how to prevent this from happening again. Within two days, Governor Cox had appointed a Citizens Relief Council, which is basically just making John Patterson's committee official, but he did. And in May, the Dayton Citizens Relief Council launched a fundraising campaign. And it surprises me, it was only 10 days long. It was a huge 10-day fundraising campaign. This is what I was talking about The Orville Wright donated to. Um, it was called um, Remember the Promises You Made in the Attic. And so it was spearheaded by John Patterson. They had a giant cash register. You can see photos of it set uh, up on our courthouse downtown, tallying the pledges people were making. And it raised more than $2 million, which is $59.2 million in today's dollars. And Dayton used the money to hire hydrological engineer Arthur E. Morgan and his Morgan Engineering Company from Tennessee to, de to design an extensive plan based on levees and dams to protect Dayton from future floods. And I am here to say it worked well. <laughs> Morgan hired 50 engineers to study flood patterns all over the world, and they came up with a few different plans which they presented to the city in October 1913. And the city chose one that utilized the construction of five earthen dams and the restructuring of the river channel that ran through Dayton. Governor Cox signed legislation in 1914 that allowed areas to create flood control districts. And because of that, the Miami Valley Conservancy District was formed in 1915, and they were in charge of the flood control project. Construction began in 1918 and was completed in 1922. It cost more than $32 million, but it was very successful and has prevented an estimated 1,500 floods since then. The five dams built by the Miami Valley Conservancy District that protect us still to this day are the Inglewood Dam, the Germantown Dam, the Huffman Dam, the Taylorsville Dam, and the Lockington Dam. I grew up in Inglewood, so very familiar with that one. My mom and dad are from Germantown, so been to that one. I've also been to Huffman. I've not been to the other two, but there are parks around them as well. So our, our metro parks have made those into really great places to go and enjoy the outdoors with your family. And so Dayton has never suffered a serious flood again, and the dams are mighty and massive to behold. And I'm so thankful that Daytonians 
were determined not to let their city be destroyed again and raise that money back then to help us still to this day. A lot of them also moved to higher ground, um, including Orville Wright and his sister Catherine and their father. They actually were already in progress of building their giant success mansion in the fanciest suburb of Dayton called Oakwood. It's still there. It's beautiful. My mom and I toured it a couple Decembers ago. And um, my house was built in 1917 and it's on high ground. So I can only imagine that the person who built it wanted to get further away from the river. But regardless of where you live in Dayton now, it is safe from flooding. So that is my hometown disaster and probably my longest episode yet. Thank you guys for hanging in there with me, listening to me tell about Dayton, the gem city in our darkest hour. If you're local and you have any flood stories, I would love to hear them. So feel free to send me an email, disasterqueenpod at gmail.com or hit me up on one of my social media on Instagram. You can message me at disasterqueenpod. I'm also on threads at disasterqueenpod and Twitter at disasterqpod. So I would love to hear from you. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do me a big, 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 big favor and rate and review on whatever platform you listen to so that more people can find me. I'm having a great time with this, but I want to share it with more people and I'm doing my best, but a little help from you guys will go a really, really long way. So thank you for being my disaster pod squad and being in here with me. Thanks for listening to the terrible tale of a lot of really brave people uh, for the 1913 Dayton flood. I will see you guys in two weeks. Stay safe and don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.